I'm your host, William Tapley. Also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here. Just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, September 17th, 2012. We're going to ease into the week today. I mean, it's the first episode for the week, and I already feel like this is like a transition episode to kind of get to what I want to get to tomorrow. Weird, huh? It's a foundation episode. I'm going to build on the... Yeah. Never mind. Uh. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, there is no shortage of crazy things being said and done out there in the name of God. And we do the comparative work, reel things in, and basically stop, slow down, compare what this doctrine is, these new ideas are, and see if it squares with Scripture. Yeah, I was <clears> to <throat> tell you how nerdy I am. I was reading in the Church Fathers this uh, weekend and uh, was rereading a section of uh, Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History. And very fascinating stuff. In book number three, he uh, gives us, you know, uh, 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 you know, kind of the story of what happened to the apostles, what was their fate, at least how the uh, church remembers it, and um, and then who took over after them. And, of course, the apostle John uh, was the uh, the apostle who really lived the longest, and so his, his uh, career post-canon, you think, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> after the New Testament canon has really been established, stuff that comes to us from the early tr- uh, church regarding who said what and who did what? It's rather interesting to read the account of uh, Serinthus of Ephesus. And uh, Serinthus was a heretic. And um, when you read Eusebius's description of what Serinthus was up to and the things that uh, he, the <clears throat> means by which he was trying to create uh, the authority for his bizarre teachings, and that's kind of the way of putting it. Because here's the deal. Um, when somebody comes to you teaching something about God, you should immediately ask the question, 
by what authority is this person making these claims? Okay, I mean, listen, I've never met God. I've said this on numerous occasions. I have never personally had a face-to-face conversation with Jesus. I haven't, uh, to the best of my knowledge, ascended to the third heaven. I haven't had an ecstatic experience. I couldn't tell you what God looks like. I've never personally seen the throne room. Um, you know, unlike Cat Kerr, um, <laughs> if I need to take my meds, I take them. And by the way, I was getting email from some of you folks saying that the problem with Cat Kerr wasn't that she wasn't taking her meds; it was probably that she was taking them. So I understand how that works. So I, you know, I don't have a medication issue either way. But the point is, is that listen, if you're going to tell me something about God, I'm going to immediately ask the question: Where'd you get this idea? And, you know, this is, in fact, one of the things we do often here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And if it's somebody from outside of Christianity, it's like, well, by what authority are you saying these things? And if it's somebody within Christianity and they're saying something brand new, something we've never heard before, something that just kind of fell out of the sky via direct download or whatever, uh, the idea is, is that you have to question by what authority, where did you get this information? And uh, coming back to the story regarding Serenthus, Eusebius lets us know that when Serenthus was trying to palm off his false doctrine, that's my uh, uh, term, I don't, I don't know if magicians were into palming back then, but in uh, cards and things like that, that's a magician's technique. Uh, but anyway, when he was trying to palm off his uh, peculiar doctrines, um, that one of the means by which he was trying to create the impression that it had authority was by basically saying, listen, 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 these doctrines that I'm teaching you, these were taught verbally by the apostles, but they weren't written in their epistles. And and so I heard this directly from the apostles, like John and Paul, but uh, they, 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 they never, nowhere got written down. And, and already the church had enough sense to say, yeah, no, that's not going to work. Um, because, listen, all that we need for both doctrine and life, and I mean this, all that we need for doctrine and life, it's written in God's Word. We don't need And I know this sounds like, well, are you limiting the Holy Spirit? Are you trying to put God in a box? Yes, I'm putting him in a U-Haul box, and I'm using uh, tape. No, no, I'm not. (laughs) It's it's one of those ridiculous statements. I mean, have you ever had a conversation with a fellow uh, Christian, at least somebody who claims to be a Christian, and and, you you say, listen, you know, I believe the Word of God is sufficient. They'll sit there and go, you're you're guilty of bibliolatry, and you're worshiping the Bible as if it's God, and and, and you're, you're... you're putting God in a box. I mean, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He, he still speaks. And to which you basically say, listen, he's spoken and he's given us a gospel that he wants us to proclaim until he returns, okay? Which is kind of the main point of, like, the opening of the book of Hebrews. Yeah, if you have your Bible, I'm kind of ad hoc here. I'm just rambling on, it feels like, but I'm, I'm trying to get to a, a point. Uh, the, uh, the apostolic author of the book of Hebrews writes, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. 
He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay? So he, here's the idea, is that, listen, um, yeah, we're no longer dealing with types and shadows. Um, we're not looking forward to um, the Messiah to be revealed or anything like that. All of Scripture is the revelation of how we got here, you know, how the earth was created, what went wrong, um, you know, the, our fall into sin, and God's literally merciful, kind, uh, definitive action on our part because of his great love for the us. We, we've cre- he, the creatures whom he's created, his great, I- I- amazing I- efforts to save us from, well, what we deserve, the wrath of God. Um, that's truly what all of us deserve. And so how does God save us from his wrath, from his justice, from the very thing that we deserve? Well, by fulfilling the law for us, by becoming a man, born of the Virgin Mary, suffering under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried, was raised again physically, bodily on the third day for our sins, for our justification, right? So this is what scripture is about. And so we have... A complete revelation. See, long ago, a long time ago, God spoke by the prophets. Now he speaks to us. He's spoken to us by his son. And where do you go to find what the son of God has said? You know, what the son of God has done? Well, answer, you open up your Bible and you read it. You look to what the apostles wrote. The apostles seem to be obsessed about Jesus. In fact, it doesn't just seem like they were obsessed about Jesus. They were ultimately and incurably centered and focused and obsessing about Jesus. They were constantly telling people about Jesus. And what is really frustrating, um, as I listen to and review many of the sermons that we review here at Fighting for the Faith, is that Christians are now off topic. They are they are talking about anything but Jesus, and while talking about anything but Jesus, have the audacity to think that they're leading people to Jesus and making them Christ followers, which is ridiculous. It's absurd. I mean, <laughs> how do you follow somebody whom you don't even know what he said or did, right? How can you say that you're a disciple or learner of Jesus when you go to church and you don't learn about Jesus? You learn about somebody else, well, like the pastor, I'm convinced that the majority of evangelicals more know. More, no, let me walk walk through this. I've got to back that up and take two words and flip them. That most evangelicals know more about their pastors than they know about Jesus. I'm I'm absolutely convinced of it. I'm you know I'm sure that they can probably give a more accurate thumbnail sketch of the life of their lead pastor than they could about the life of Jesus. <laughs> it's just absolutely ridiculous um and so we've got a we got a major problem nowadays uh because there's just false doctrine running rampant christianity is off topic and by the way have you noticed that the world seems to be going crazy that well if for those of us who live in the united states the united states is literally just sliding into apostate oblivion okay the culture is getting worse not better and why? I personally, 
I blame the church. Why do I blame the church? It's real simple. It's This is real simple. The church, for the large part of my lifetime, in, in, in a significant enough portions or you know percentage percentages has been off topic they've been off fighting the culture war they're off doing politics they're off building the kingdom of god by digging freshwater wells and and out there building big churches that have like nothing to do with jesus because they don't teach jesus and so as a result of it we've got huge portions of the population in within American evangelicalism that are off topic, off subject. They're not preaching the gospel. And by the way, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. And so listen, you know, every single one of your neighbors um when they have a baby, that baby like you uh, is born dead in trespasses and sins. And um preaching a cultural mandated change and transformation and whatever and stuff like that. That's not the gospel. And that ain't going to save that your neighbor's kid or your neighbor. Okay. Preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross is the power of God to salvation that will raise your neighbor from the dead spiritually today and physically on the last day. Okay. And People who have been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins are new creations in Christ, and they have new appetites. Not not just solely appetites for evil and self-satisfaction uh, and pleasure and things like that. They have an appetite to do the good works to which God has called them to. Okay. So what's weird is is that I've you know, over and again, if you kind of summarize the sermons that we're listening to nowadays, we got preachers literally demanding good works from pagans. It doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, uh, good works flow from faith, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. And you know, getting people to clean up their act and transform their lives, which, by the way, is just a miserably um, a miserable phrase that doesn't mean anything. Okay, how many how many times have you heard a church say, "Oh, listen, you know what we've got going on here? We got life transformation going on in our church." Well, that's great and all. Um, but what's the cash value of that sentence? And, you know, when we sit down and compare what you mean by life transformation, is that really synonymous with what the the Bible teaches regarding sanctification? Okay. Or is it just cleaning up your life and, you know, and you sinning less, you know, if if really that's even possible. You understand what I'm saying? Anyway, so... Let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to talk about a church that is off topic. I've got an Ignite Church. That's the name of this church, Ignite Church in Joplin, Missouri. I've got an Ignite Church twin spin. And uh, what I'm reviewing today will end up making it into the Museum of Idolatry if you'd like to see it. Um, I'll put it up in the Museum of Idolatry uh, probably tonight or tomorrow at the latest. And uh, they've got a – oh, man. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, we got a lot of uh, seeker-driven churches who have moved the um, the uh, um, obligatory sex sermons that normally take place around Valentine's Day. They've moved it to the fall kickoff during the month of September. And, uh, you know, and uh, so Ignite Church in um, Joplin, Missouri is no different. And so we're going to be listening to a – 
I, for lack of a better way of putting it, a praise and worship song called Sexy and I Know It. And the reason I'm calling it a praise and worship song is because it's sung in church. If it's sung in church, well, it's got to be a praise and worship song, right? So the name of the song is Sexy and I Know It. And then we're going to be listening to their um, <clears throat> pastor explain um, his name, by the way, is um, uh, Heath uh, Mooneyham. And uh, he's going to be explaining how they've come up with the icons for their sermon series to explain sexual topics. And um, and the uh, the artwork that they're using for their sermons are carrots and donuts. No kidding. Um, by the way, this segment probably is not appropriate for little ears, so I'm warning you now. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to be doing... Part two of my vertical church debrief. I attended uh, James McDonald's vertical church uh, event at uh, Traders Point Christian Church in uh, the uh, Indianapolis Northwest last week, and uh, this is kind of a transition one. What I really want to get to, I can't get to it today because I got to kind of build the foundation to you know that you're going to need. So you're going to need today and tomorrow together. They're kind of a unit, but today's more foundational work, and uh, you're, you're going to notice a supreme lack of anything really, truly offensive in anything that he's saying. Uh, in fact, I'm going to find myself agreeing with a, a lot of at least the core concept of what it is that James McDonald is talking about in today's installment. So be prepared for that. Tomorrow, though, is where uh, we're, we're going to demonstrate that he is kind of off topic and missing the whole point, that I, even though he's correctly identified the problem in the church, which is weird because I think he's part of the problem. Um, he tomorrow he's going to miss the issue. He's going to miss the really the the real solution because he thinks the solution to the problem in the church is that we need the glory to come down. You know what we need is God to rip apart the mountains and 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 for us to experience His glory. But I'm going to show you from the passage that he ends his uh, <clears throat> event with that he misses the point of what is God's glory. So, yeah, funny enough, from Exodus 34. So we're going to do that. And then in hour number two, I don't know if I've ever reviewed a sermon from this church, but we're going to be uh, listening to a sermon from uh, a church called Upper Room Community. Upper Room Community, the uh, pastor preaching is entitled, his name is Joe McDonald, no relation to uh, James McDonald. And uh, the name of the sermon is, listen, God still speaks, cultivating a conversation, which, by the way, I think is a very, this is one of the most dangerous sermons I've ever reviewed, and it's not very long, but uh, this is not what the Bible teaches us to do regarding uh, hearing the voice of God. So with that, we are going to uh, dive into the program proper. I do not have... um, well, uh, music to introduce this next segment. But uh, after this week, I'm sure we're going to be paying close attention to this church. So, by the way, the name of the church, again, is Ignite Church. It's in Joplin, Missouri. Um, I've got family in Joplin, Missouri. And um, this past week, this past Sunday, as part of their uh, fall kickoff sex sermon series, uh, under their lead uh, seeker-driven pastor, Heath, uh, Heath Mooneyham, uh, they decided to have a praise and worship song sung during church. Now, you think, are you sure this was a praise and worship song? Hey, any any song that's being sung during church, I'm assuming either is a hymn or has something to do with God and it's supposed to be for praise and worship. Isn't that the purpose of music in church? But anyway, the name of the song is Sexy and I Know It. 
And uh, here, see if this sounds like it's appropriate material um, for church. You know, listen in. Now, what you can't see is there's two big red cubes on stage, one on either side, flanking the uh, the left and right side of the drum kit. And, kid you not, uh, big red letters, sex. And then um, there's, um, on the other side, there's a carrot and a donut. I'll have him, ex- uh, the pastor, explain the carrot and donut to you briefly here. When I walk on by, girls be looking like always fly. I pimp to the bee, walking on the street, my new love freak, yeah. This is how I roll, animal print pants out of control. It's a red foo with a big afro, and like Bruce Lee, I got the glow. Oh, oh, girl, look at that body. Oh, oh, girl, look at that body. Oh, oh, girl, look at that body. Ah, work out. When I walk on the spot, this is what I see. Everybody stares, they're staring at me. I got passion in my pants, and I ain't afraid to show it, show it, show it. Ooh, I'm sexy and I know it. Yeah, this makes sense, by the way, since uh, a lot of the seeker-driven churches have gone narcissistic. I mean, it's all about them. Makes sense that during praise and worship song, they'd be singing a song like this. I mean, I, this I, should be a standard set at these narcissistic, seeker-driven churches, don't you think? Yeah, I'm sexy and I know it. Ooh, I'm sexy and I know it. I'm sexy and I know it. When I'm at the mall, security just can't fight them off. When I'm at the beach, I'm in a speedo trying to tan my cheeks. Why? This is how I roll. Come on, ladies, it's time to go. We headed to the bar, baby, don't be nervous. No shoes, no shirt, and I still get service. Oh, oh, girl, look at that body. Oh, oh, girl, look at that body. Oh, oh, girl, look at that body. I work out. Yeah, the theological depth here is just absolutely mind-boggling. On the spot, this is what I see. Everybody stares, they're staring at me. I got passion in my pants, and I ain't afraid to show it, show it, show it. Yeah, I'm sexy and I know it. I'm sexy and I know it. Ooh, I'm sexy and I know it. So wiggle, 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 yeah. Wiggle, 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 yeah. Uh. I'm sure that's totally appropriate in church. Uh -uh. Wiggle, 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 yeah. Wiggle, 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 yeah. I'm sexy and I know it. I'm sexy and I know it. Oh, yeah, I'm sexy and I know it. Yeah, there you go. Sexy and I know it from Ignite Church, Joplin, Missouri. 
And if you're thinking, who's the pastor there? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. His name is Heath Mooneyham, and um, here he is explaining the carrot donut icons next to the big uh, red letters um, sex. Here we go. Uh, like I, I didn't grow up in a real churchy home, but my wife did and all this stuff. And like, nobody just, nobody talked to her about sex. Like my dad's idea of talking to me about sex was 50 bucks in a condom. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yep. <laughs> apparently he's doing stand up comedy. Daddy. <laughs> um, Feel weird preaching from my dad like this, but uh, <laughs> anyways, yeah. So it's just messed up. My wife grew up real churchy, and they're just like, uh, yeah. What what is the church people and grandmas have in common? You know, I don't know. Like they they scare you into like, oh, you'll go blind. <laughs> I've never met one blind dude because he touched it too much. You know what I'm saying? I'm just. <laughs> Never really talked to that many blind people, though. Could be. I don't know. I always wonder what happened to Ray. And um, so, I don't know. Isn't it just, it's just awkward. You know, and then we got uh, people go, oh, why you get, we got this symbol of carrots and donuts. I don't know. That was just a divine intervention from God about 19 months ago whenever we was talking about sex. I just thought, carrots and donuts, you know. Here's, here's one thing that we, we decided to adopt carrot and donuts for, sim, start for our sex symbols around here. Maybe a visual reminder to all of us. I wonder if you can find a cross. You know, I think that would be a legit question. You know, people say, where do you stand on homosexuality? I say, just here's my stance on it. God never, never created us men to sword fight. And it didn't, and didn't, create, didn't create women for pastry parties either. And so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, this is, by the way, uh, the sermon, the Sunday, from a church. And uh, don't act holy in this place. You, you'll, be, you'll be on the outside looking in. And uh, so, yeah, so just, re- just remember, because you teenagers, you're not sure which way is up right now. Dudes, don't sword fight, all right? Just remember that you'll be fine. There's a perfect donut waiting for you out there one of these days. <laughs> With sprinkles. And uh anyway, I'm gonna move on. This is went down to the gutter real fast, hadn't it? And uh mm-hmm. yeah, it did. I don't know how you could possibly recover from that. So that, by the way, is just the latest example of what's going on in so called Christian churches, all in the name of being culturally relevant and helping people become mature and equipped followers of Jesus. And yet it's absolutely salacious. It's this, I mean, that was sinfully wrong. But of course, the reason why I can play it is because a pastor preached it. So that makes it okay, right? Yeah, no, I don't think it makes it okay at all. And if you have a pastor that's engaging in those types of culturally relevant shenanigans it's time for you to pack up and leave it's time for you to find a church where the pastor rather than doing a racy sexually inappropriate stand-up comedy routine on sunday mornings is instead going to open up god's word and 
reverently, not relevantly, reverently teach you about Jesus and proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. Sound biblical doctrine. Um, Biblical Christian pastors have way too much important work to do to be engaging in that kind of absolutely off-topic lunacy. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. By the way, if you're following me on Facebook, you need to subscribe now. I've hit the 5,000 limit for my friends, so just hit the subscribe button. We will be right back. Being good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. You have reached the voice mailbox for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. That I, I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you can make one of your really fancy videos and tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name, I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and... uh One more thing, you might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. You know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey, everyone. This word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name, and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. 
come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me, give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you. And it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day. So Vincent, come to the Lord. Wait no longer. Vacillate between two opinions no longer. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, fighting for the faith can sometimes just cause you to want to beat your head against a very blunt object. Don't don't give in to that. Just leave your church and go find a church where they preach the gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. There are perks. Uh, Before this month is out, we will be sending out an email to all of our crew 
crew members so that they can download our latest ebook, which is uh, from Martin Luther on basically the, the topic is about how the Bible is the only thing that should be preached in church. It's just a fantastic tiny little book and uh, well worth the read. And uh, those of you who are crew members will be getting the link before the month is out. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Look out, look out. Big elephants on parade, here they come. They're here, and there are big elephants everywhere. That's right, we're doing a James McDonald update. Look out, they're walking around the bed, on the head, clippity-coppity, parade, in braid, big elephants on parade. What'll I do, what'll I do, what an unusual view. I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid. Need your aid, big elephants on parade. Big elephants. Yeah, that's right. Pink Elephants on Parade from the uh, movie Dumbo. Anyway, so uh, let me kind of set this up for you here. I I told you I would give you a series of debriefs on James McDonald's Vertical Church. Now, what's interesting about his event is that he was basically in two texts uh, for making his point. The first was Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. And then he retold the story of Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but Moses ascending Mount Sinai, the uh, children of Israel making a golden calf, uh, God saying he's not going to go with them anymore, and um, and then Moses pleading on behalf of them, you know, please don't you know, leave us, um, you know, for your name's sake, you know, go with us, and um, and God relenting, and then Moses asking to see um, God's glory. Those were pretty much the the text. What's interesting about uh, James McDonald's presentation was the inordinate amount of time he spent on half a verse from uh, Isaiah chapter 64. Now, I'm going to point something out here, okay? And you're, you're going to hear this kind of for yourself is that, uh, and you, you got a little bit of a taste for it, uh, it last week, is that James McDonald is basically bemoaning what's happened to the church in the United States. He's, he's got statistics. He's got, he's got examples. He's got anecdotal stories that all show that the, 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 the church is declining, not keeping up with the growth of the population, that this is a bad, terrible thing, that God has left the building in, in many churches. And I would say, uh, to, to a point, I understand what he's saying and would sort of kind of agree, okay? I get what he's saying, but I agree for different reasons than he does. And he, in his vertical church, you know, tour on, you know, in this in this tour that he's making, as well as in the vertical church book itself, argues from Isaiah sixty four and from Exodus thirty four that the solution that we need is God's presence. To which I would say, well, yeah, duh, <laughs> yeah, I get that. Um, yeah, that's what's missing in a lot of these places. And so where where he really comes up short 
num- number one is is that Isaiah 64 and um, Exodus 34 are not passages that necessarily uh, deal with the church or with the solution to a church problem, okay? Because the question that immediately would come up is, where has God promised to be? That's a better question, okay? Uh, where is it that God has promised his presence? And we're talking more than just, you know, understand he, he's going to make an argument. You're going to hear it uh, against this, uh, the, you know, something called the manifest presence of God as opposed to just God's omnipresence. God is everywhere present. Yes, true. But he's talking about God's manifest presence. So where has God promised to manifestly be? I'll, I'll just ask the question, but I'm kind of setting this up. But what was really disappointing was is that the texts that he chose to make his point really don't make the point that he wants to make. And furthermore, because he selectively cited these quotes, um, he misses the bigger point. Okay, I'll give you an example from Isaiah 64. Let me, let me, if you have your Bible, go to the book of Isaiah chapter 64. And he literally spent 25, 30 minutes on half a sentence. And here's the sentence. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. No joke. I mean, we were on bunny trail after bunny trail after bunny trail after bunny trail um, with him, you know, talking about this half a sentence. And and then like the last 10 minutes of his presentation, he crammed it with uh, the story of uh, the Israelites on Mount Sinai and the golden calf and, and the glory thing. And he missed the glory thing, by the way, because he missed the glory. I'll, ex- I'll explain that tomorrow on Fighting for the Faith. But Anyway, let me read to you this passage. I'm going to show you something that's going on. Now, one of the things that we can say is that none of us is Isaiah. Not one of us is Isaiah. Although there is much to say, there's much that Isaiah can bring to bear in our current circumstances today with the apostate church. The church has just gone really off the deep end badly, and is theologically corrupted, is is absolutely in apostasy in so many different uh, quarters. And so, uh, you know, just like the uh, Isaiah had to deal with false prophets, um, people teaching falsely about God, people who, uh, you know, it, I mean, just the syncretism that was going on in Israel, the idolatry that was going on in Israel. Uh, you read, uh, you read Jeremiah, you read Isaiah, and you go, man, this—it's it's like these could be written today. Okay, they could because of a similar circumstances. So the point that uh, James McDonald makes, and it's not necessarily a bad one, is that. Isaiah's kind of punchline here at the end of his book is that, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. But that's not exactly the punchline of Isaiah 64. Let me show you. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and Fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for you. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and 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 shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. That would be... <clears throat> 
menstrual rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Okay? So here, we're not to the punchline yet. The punchline is not, oh, that you would come down and rend the heaven, you know, rend the, rip apart the mountains and stuff like that. He's there's a bigger thing going on here, and that is is that God has hidden His face from them because they are now all steeped in their sin and iniquity. Right? Here's where the punchline is. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our Potter, and we are all the work of Your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become wildernesses. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? What's the punchline? He is praying for forgiveness. See, the solution to sin is God's mercy and forgiveness. The reason why Israel was in such dire straits is because God had turned them over to their sins and iniquities as a result of, well, his judgment of their idolatry. Right? The solution was forgiveness. The solution was God's pardoning of iniquities. And see, that's what James misses. And got to tell you, when you listened, if, if you, you know, when I re-listened to this over and again, it just it was all law, 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 law. And all the law can do is condemn. The solution to our problem in the church is the preaching of the gospel. We must get back to proclaiming our crucified and risen Savior and our merciful God who pardons iniquities, forgives sins, even the sins of those who are off-topic in the church and preaching falsely. So anyway, that's the setup for uh, what it is that you're about to hear. Again, what you're going to hear him talking about, we're at the tail end of his conversation, so to speak, regarding the half verse, Isaiah 64, 1.1, and he'll eventually get to like the next part of the verse, but it's out of context, and it's not the solution that's really presented in the book of Isaiah. So with that, here is James McDonald. And again, keep in mind, this is a transition. This is foundation work to get to where we need to go to tomorrow in our debrief. So uh, again, here's James McDonald. Church is supposed to be the place where mountains move. And when church is the place again where mountains move, we'll have to order more chairs. Okay? Because there's a lot of people out there that have no idea how mountains move. The problem is, is that we so affect, I was talking to a pastor recently and he was telling me something he did in his church and, and he was kind of defending it and he said, you know, the people weren't offended. I said, God was offended. God was offended by what you did. God's holiness was offended by what you did. And I think the reality that we've got to come to is, is that, in fact, 
God does not attend most churches in North America anymore. <clears throat> now that's a bold claim on his point, uh, on his part. I don't have a problem with it per se. Let me explain what I mean by that. Is when I look at what has happened to the churches in America. Now understand that there have been successive waves of false teaching and false doctrine that have been sweeping into the churches in America. I would go back to the modernist liberals, uh, Henry, Henry Emerson Fosdick and his gang, and the people that J. Gresham Machen was writing against. Okay, you Look at what happened to the churches when modernist liberalism took over in these churches. You have entire congregations that were full, that were then left with just barely anybody there, and what they were being fed wasn't God's word. Literally, modernist liberalism spends an inordinate amount of time during a church service trying to explain to you that uh, the Bible isn't the word of God. So in those churches where God isn't proclaimed, Christ isn't proclaimed, repentance and the forgiveness of sin sins isn't proclaimed, um, instead, you have the social gospel, and you ha- have a denial of of the virgin birth, of the bodily resurrection of Christ, all of these things. Yeah, I think we can definitively say that God, the Holy Spirit, is not speaking in those churches. Why? Because God's word isn't being procle- proclaimed and taught. So I understand what he's saying. The problem is, is that in the vertical church book, James McDonald implies that there are pastors who are teaching sound doctrine where God isn't in attendance. That is an issue. He's not going... A lot of times people will say to me, well, how do you know when it's time to leave a church? This will help. If God doesn't attend anymore, you're free to leave. Okay? Faithfulness, faithfulness doesn't mean standing guard duty over a pile of bricks on a corner. Now... Let me just be careful here. If you have a pastor who loves God and believes the gospel and loves the word of God, you don't change churches because you figure out something that he needs to work on. You just go buy a mirror and, and look at what you need to work on. If you've got a pastor that loves God and is praying and wants the church to be more and wants God to be more in the church, you just get behind him and pray God's will down on that church. Amen. Now, that's kind of the first time you hear this in a statement like it. Now, it's not the same statement, but later in tomorrow's installment, you're going to hear him talking about bringing the glory down. I don't even know what that means. But so if your pastor wants to make God more and make the church more, well, then you stay there. Okay. Now, keep in mind, again, he's working from the Isaiah 64 text at this point. Um, oh, you know, and that is, you know, oh, that you would come down and rend, you know, would rend the heavens and come down and that the mountains might quake at your presence. Okay. So you got to move the quake, got quakey mountains and things like that. That's his solution is God's presence in that sense. But the thing is, is that the church is distinguished by the fact of God's presence to forgive God's presence to save and pardon sinners, okay? We got to be very careful when we talk about God's presence. What is God present to do? Is he there to rend the heavens 
or to declare sinners forgiven. It's very different things than, you know, that we're talking about here. But if you go to a church where they don't believe the Bible, where they hardly reference it, where they're not, they don't, they don't love the Lord, they don't preach the gospel, they, they, if you go to that church, trust me on this one, if God's not going anymore, you're free to leave. And this is where I would agree with him, okay? If you are attending a church where Christ's word is not proclaimed, where repentance and the forgiveness of sins is not the main focus of the preaching, where Jesus is not really taught, he's not taught in such a way as to basically confront you with your sin and unbelief and bring you to repentance and belief in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, leave, absolutely leave. If they're obsessed with basically teaching you how to balance your checkbook, how to uh, you know do the, doing things like the Daniel plan or stuff like that, get out of there because they're not teaching the Bible and proclaiming Christ, and they're they're basically twisting the Bible in in a way that tries to hide the fact that they don't believe it. And 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 that's going on a lot, a lot more than people realize. All around us, it's going on. And the only thing that's going to change that is God rending the heavens and coming down and and causing mountains in people's lives. Just think about it. What would church be like if every weekend there was another story or two or three or five or ten or twenty or fifty of somebody who got a mountain moved in their life? Notice what he's calling for here. So there's a problem in the church. The solution is God coming down and moving mountains. What would church be like? This is a standard seeker-driven litany. What what if what 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 would the church be like if God came down and moved mountains and stuff like that? Again, he's not this is not a proper application of uh, Isaiah 64 because the ultimate solution that Isaiah is looking for is God to pardon their iniquities. God being present to save and to forgive, not rend mountains. So notice he's allegorized the mountains at this point in his <clears throat> lecture. Did you hear about Bill and Sheila? Now their, their daughter came home. She loves God again. She was sitting with him in church and raising her hands. I didn't think she was ever coming back. And, and, and did you hear about, did you hear about uh, uh, Dave and Sally? And, 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 and everybody thought their marriage was over. And, and, and God just took them down. And they humbled themselves. And they reconciled. And they've been remarried. And now their family's one in Christ. It's awesome what the Lord has done for them. And, and you, when, you, when the church is calling upon God. And he's moving mountains for the people in the church. And those stories are being told. And the words being heralded. That, and the sons being adored by the people. Uh, notice what's supposed to be heralded according to him yeah he says the son but the, the uh, what's what's supposed to be taught is all the stories of life change that's not a biblical story if some if somebody in your church is brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins that is a fantastic and amazing miraculous thing that has transpired and that is not to be what's preached on Sunday. What's to be preached on Sunday is God's word. Okay? The stories of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets. Okay? That's what's to be preached, not somebody's life change story. Hi. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Uh, 
that's what I'm talking about. But not so much. Not so much. So, um, here's a summary term for the whole thing. Look at the end of the verse. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your... Last word. See, that's it. It's God's presence in the church. It's God's presence in the church. That's what we're talking about. That's what we desperately need. Now, Right, right. And where has God promised to be? What does Jesus say? Where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. He's present. Okay? When Christians gather in the name of Christ, in the name of the triune God, to hear his word, to feast on his supper, to baptize, Christ is present. Right? That's what he's promised and that's what we need to get back to here he's somehow you know how do we know that god is present well we got mountains that are being moved stories of life change great experiences hmm yet scripture says when two or more gathered in his name he is there present And what are they gathered to do? To hear his word, to feast on his supper, and to baptize, right? To pray, to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is what happens. This is done soberly. Does it lead to life change? Yes. If by life change you're talking about the Christian doctrine of sanctification, where by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of God's word, Our sins are confronted, repented of, and forgiven. And God, the Holy Spirit, creates in us godly appetites for good works and gives us the strength to mortify our sinful flesh so that we can then, at the end of the process, say with the Apostle Paul, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Who is going to rescue me from this body of sin? Right? So that we despise, loathe, and hate sin, even the sin that clings to our sinful flesh, causing us to do the things we don't want to do. If that's what you mean by life change, then I'm all for it. But I don't think that's what he means by life change. Because what's missing over and again in these stories of life change and these supposed ecstatic experiences is people ecstatically experiencing remorse for their sin and the comfort that comes through the good news that Christ died for our sins. As much as there's some common ground here between McDonald and myself, I don't see that we're talking about the same solution. I hear critical guy up here again. Yeah, I... I think he was referring to me because he knew I was in the audience. He says, I hear critical guy up there again. He, there was somebody who was supposedly this fictitious person he was talking to. And he, during the thing, it was weird. He referenced critical guy three times, at least three times. And um, what was funny is he says he, he felt that he was up in this part of the audience. And uh, he, well, if he was referring to me, he was pointing in the wrong direction. I mean, it's like I was on the other side of the 
auditorium. But anyway. Saying to me, and you're starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> I hear critical guys like, well, you know, I thought you went to seminary, man. And I'm really surprised to hear you saying, you know, that we need to invoke God's presence. I'm surprised that they haven't taught you up in Chicago about, uh, well, down here in Indiana, we call it omnipresence. And some say omnipresence. Yeah, this is just a lame red herring, bad theological critique offered by critical guy, whoever he is, a figment of James McDonald's imagination, apparently. Omnipresence, but we prefer omnipresence. And, and, and I'm surprised you don't know about God's omnipresence, that God is everywhere. Really? Really? Is that what you were taught? Because that's a problem. If you were taught, were you taught? Were you taught that God is everywhere? I mean, everywhere? God is everywhere. God's everywhere. Preachers are saying this all the time. God's everywhere. God's everywhere. Really? Really, is he? Is he? Are you pretty sure about that? Everywhere. He's everywhere. How many people believe that God's everywhere? How many people are like, I told you would have put my hand up, but you're confusing me. <laughs> okay. All right. So just to put this all at ease, I don't want Aaron to come up and throw me down here or something. I... Okay, for real. God is everywhere. The Bible teaches that. It's not even a debatable point. And David said, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I go into the lower parts of the earth, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, go to the uttermost parts of the earth, even there, your right hand will uphold me. God is everywhere. Say it. The problem is, is that even though it is true that God is everywhere, God is not equally everywhere. And theologians uh, phrase it this way, that God's omnipresence is resplendent with prerogative. And what that means is, is that while God is everywhere, He is not equally everywhere. He's not working equally everywhere. I sense the Lord's presence in this uh, great room here tonight. But do you think that God uh, will be here uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning this morning, the same way He's here now? Well, the answer is no. When these lights are off and this door is padlocked, God's omnipresence uh, may provide His availability for anyone who would enter. But God will not be manifestly present here the way he is when he, as the psalmist says, inhabits the praise of his people. Otherwise, what would be the point of scriptures like draw near to God and he will draw near to you? And theologian boy over here would be like, well, he's everywhere. Then why did he say draw near to me? Why then? What's your big answer? You don't have one, do you? <laughs> it's because uh, Psalm uh, thirty-four seventeen says that the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. So while God is everywhere, he... <clears throat> I would point out what he just quoted. God is near to those who are broken-hearted. Right. That's why God is there to forgive when the gospel is being proclaimed and God's law is being preached boldly to confront people with their sins, to break them, to humble them, to strip them of all pretenses of self-righteousness. See, God draws near to the humble, the brokenhearted. Those would be those crushed by God's law and comforted by the good news of the forgiveness of sins, won by Christ on the cross. See, again, the question is, what is God present there to do? It's not whether or not he's present. The question is, what is he present there to do? Is he there to forgive? Is he there to comfort with the gospel, to pardon sinners, or is he there to judge? Those are kind of your two options. 
especially, some call this special presence or manifest presence. He's especially present where he is invoked, where he is desired, where he is welcomed, where he is proclaimed, where he is revealed, where he is adored, where he is petitioned. This is where God is. He certainly doesn't attend our helpfulness seminars. You think that's better than me? You think that's better than me? How's that working for you? I'm not great is the answer, Lord. I'm not great. I've got one more passage to show you and I'm done. Would you uh, turn back with me in your Bibles to Exodus 32? Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to pause there and we'll pick this up tomorrow. Uh, this Again, I, I told you at the beginning of the program, today was kind of a transition um, day in the program because what I really want to get to, I need to get to tomorrow, but I don't have time to fully develop it today. So that was installment number two on my Vertical Church debrief uh, with James McDonald. Again, just quick summary. Yes, he's correctly identified that there's a problem in the church. He even properly named it despite the fact that he's um, <clears throat> uh, complicit in the crime that's been committed on the church, which I pointed out last time. Um, and at this point, his use of Isaiah 64, verse 1, is found wanting because that wasn't the solution, according to even that passage. The solution is that God would forgive, that God would pardon. We need God to be present to forgive us of our iniquities, not turn us over to them, not basically turn us over to our sins in such a way that we continue to grow worse and worse and worse and worse like we have, but that God would mercifully release his word of forgiveness, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, so that we would be brought to repentance and trust in Christ, humbled in his presence, contrite, mournful for what we have done wrong, you know, rather than proud, boasting, and arrogant, in our idolatry and false doctrine. Big difference, you know. Anyway, all right. We are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to subscribe to my feed on Facebook. Go to facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. It could be my memory, but I do think this is the first sermon I've reviewed from this church. Could be wrong. <laughs> Let's just say that they haven't been a regular, and they're definitely threatened to become one. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon was scary comes to us via upper room community this is a church that builds itself as a community loving god and others in the rhythm of jesus in minneapolis minnesota no clue what that means the name of the sermon is listen god still speaks cultivating a conversation the uh, man delivering the sermon is in, his name is Joe McDonald. Let me tell you what you're basically going to receive here: a complete, subjective, non-biblical teaching that cannot be found in the Bible. It basically tells you you need to cultivate um, figuring out how to tune in and listen to God. You know, he's out there somewhere. You just need to figure out how to tune in on the right frequencies. And, well, the way you do that is by applying the right particular practices and attuning yourself to catching God on the right frequency kind of thing. Yeah, I wish I was making that up. So, um, let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here's Joe McDonald. And listen, God Still Speaks, cultivating a conversation. Here we go. Last week we started what is essentially a seven-week series on listening to God. And the end goal in our quest to listen for God's voice in our lives is to experience an ongoing and deepening conversational relationship with God. Because it's only then that we can learn to listen to and recognize and then act in obedience to God's voice in our lives as we draw closer and closer to the heart. Okay, did you catch that? So the only way we can become obedient to God is by learning how to listen for his voice in our lives. This would fall into the category of, uh, of what uh, Dan Phillips from the Pyromaniacs called, calls being a leaky cannoneer. Uh, listen, you want to find out how to obey God? It's real simple. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, training, rebuking, all of that stuff, so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Um, listen, you need to knock off this nonsense about somehow building some kind of a, you know, a system whereby you can uh, figure out the subjective voice of God, tune into the right frequency so that you can obey him. Um, why don't we start with the 66 books that are written that we know that we can trust because they have the, the basically God's stamp of approval on them through Jesus. 
let's go with those and let's become really proficient with that and let's see how you do, okay? And, you know, trust me, this is the thing that we need, not you trying to figure out how to subjectively figure out how to obey God. Already we're off on the wrong foot. Heart of God so that God's heart becomes our heart. Tonight, our focus is on our need to cultivate a conversational life with God in order to hear from him, to try our best as an individuals, as individual followers of Jesus, to set an environment in which we're able to hear from God. And this is a journey. One thing I've realized in my life is this, you don't just turn this on and say, I want to listen to God and I want to hear God's voice in my life. And immediately it happens. It's a journey. It takes time. And that environment in which we can hear from God and recognize God's voice might be different for all of us. But the one thing that we all need to do is carve out the time and be intentional about doing it so that we can ultimately recognize and follow God's voice in our lives. Uh-huh. Yeah, you do that by opening up the Bible. Okay? Now, he's going to pay lip service to the Bible, but that's not the point he's making. You'll notice what's not open here, what he's not preaching from, that would be God's word. This is not taught in a passage in Scripture. This is him admonishing us basically from assertions being made by him, not from something that's said in the biblical text. We recognize voices for a lot of different reasons. We recognize voices because they're unique. Just unique tone, unique sound or quality. We just recognize voices sometimes because of the uniqueness. Then there's the context, kind of like Bart Simpson, eat my shorts. We know the context of what Bart would say, and that's why it was easy to figure that out, if you could hear it. But in the context, we get used to how people talk or what they talk about, and we can learn to recognize their voice. Then there's exposure. We're just exposed to people's voices so much that we learn to recognize their voices. And then one other thing is time. Over the course of time, the more time we spend with somebody leads to familiarity. Think of your mom or your dad, your brother, your sister, your spouse, your best friend or a coworker. Okay, I want to point this out. This is a plausible-sounding argument with one fatal flaw. This isn't taught in God's Word. He's basically doing philosophy, not Christian doctrine. It's a journey. And in that, the more time we spend with God, the more we'll recognize the uniqueness of His voice in our lives and the context in which He speaks to us in our lives. Now, it's obviously not critically important that you recognize or didn't recognize the voices that we just listened to, right? The reality of today's media, though, is that through radio, through the Internet, through television, through the 24-hour news cycle, we are bombarded with countless numbers of voices. And the voices that we're bombarded with are voices that other people think should be important to us and that we should be listening to and recognizing in our lives. However, in most cases, those celebrities and even most politicians sometimes, it doesn't feel like they have a direct day-to-day impact on our everyday life. But God wants to have a direct day-to-day impact on our everyday lives. And my sense is that most of you want to know what God desires for you in your life. But we can't just say we want to hear what God has for us. We can't just say we want to listen to God better. We have to order our lives so that we can do it. We have to give that the time. We have to start trying to hear. 
We have to pray for the desire to hear from God and for the ability to discern and recognize God's voice in our lives. Mm-hmm. So for the ability to discern and recognize God's voice in our lives. God, is that you, God? Come in, God. I'm having a hard time. God, hello? Hello? Uh, just not on the right frequency. I really want to hear from you. God, can you? Uh, just didn't work. <sighs> Got to try harder. We have to practice at it. We have to set aside the time, quiet ourselves in this busy world, and go about doing the things that we need to do instead of the environment that we need to set to hear from God. Listening to God is critically important. It's the key to unlocking the life that God would have for us. Okay, where in the Bible does it say that listening to God subjectively is the key to unlocking whatever in your life? Answer, there isn't a biblical text that says this. This is not a biblical teaching. This is a philosophical presentation based upon plausible-sounding arguments with basically the assumption, well, here's how it works in our, in our day-to-day life. That must be how it works with God, right? That's a problem. Plausible-sounding arguments do not Christian doctrine make. In fact, oftentimes, plausible-sounding arguments are diametrically opposed to what God has revealed in His Word. This, again, is not a biblical teaching. It's the foundation for the fullness of life that Jesus offers to us. It's the way in which we step into the activity of God and live and love and serve others in his name. Step into the activity of God. I don't know what that means. This sounds very much akin to Blackaby. Name. Listening to God is the foundation for the adventure of your lifetime the foundation. Where in the Bible does it say that listening to subjective voices I'm supposed to tune into to hear God's voice uh, will are the basis for some adventure of a lifetime? It doesn't. This isn't a biblical teaching. ...for the adventure of your lifetime. Joseph Myers is an author. He wrote a book called The Search to Belong. And the subtitle is Rethinking Intimacy, Community, and Small Groups. And basically in his book, he's trying to answer the question, how can the church kind of best help people experience deeper levels of intimacy and community? And I actually had a chance about six and a half years ago to spend a half day with him in Winona down south. And I can't remember much of anything we talked about that day, honestly, but one thing has stuck in my head for six and a half years, and it's what he talked about And when we try to go to sleep, think about going to sleep at night. And what he said was this. He said, we do all we can to set the ideal environment to fall asleep. And for all of us, that's different. But there's a certain temperature that's ideal for us. There's a certain amount of light that's ideal for us. There's a certain pre-bedtime routine that is ideal for us. Maybe there's a bed in a certain position or you're on a certain side of the bed. Do you sleep on your stomach? Do you sleep on your side or sleep on your back? So all these things go together to set up an environment for sleep. But he said in the end, you can't will yourself to actually go to sleep. You can't force yourself to sleep. You just have to wait once you set the environment for your body to give in and fall asleep. As I thought about that over the last couple weeks, it made a lot of sense in this idea of listening to God. It's a question I think we need to answer tonight and in our lives is how do we best set up an environment that leads us to be able to hear from God and recognize God's voice? 
Do you engage in feng shui? Do you face north, south, east, west? Does it work when you have some kind of a white noise generator going in your home? Or do you have to wear particular clothing? What are you talking about? Where in the Bible is any of this taught like this? Answer, nowhere. Do you want to hear God's voice? Open your Bible and read it. You will hear the very voice of God. How can we best order our lives so that we can do that? Two weeks ago, Greg Boyd stood on the stage and he said this. It was profound. Greg Boyd. Yeah. Um, process theologian. Yeah. Resting in God's love is the foundation for all transformation. Rest. So Greg Boyd said resting in God's love is the foundation for all transformation. That's fantastic. That's a great slogan. Where is it taught in the Bible? Job of a pastor on Sunday morning is to preach the word. Um, you know what's missing from this entire presentation thus far? Biblical passages to demonstrate that this is what God wants us to do from his word written. Resting in God's love is the foundation for all transformation. And if you apply it to this idea of listening to God, I believe we're led to, we're led to understand that cultivating our love relationship with God will lead us to hearing and recognizing God's voice in our lives. It doesn't just happen. We need to do things. We need to order our lives. We need to give it intentional effort. We need to. We need to. We need to. We need to. Boy, God sure does seem powerless. He can't speak to us until we seem to be intentional and spend time figuring out the right temperature and creating the environment and all that kind of stuff. Poor God. It's so sad that he's so lame that he's not capable of just talking to us, you know? And practice. Emailed a bunch of friends last week as I was preparing for my two messages last week and tonight. And a few friends, Dave, Derek, Jamie, Michelle, Janice, and Mikolai, they responded to me. And I love the phrases they use to describe this idea of intentionality and actually practicing and doing things, making the effort. They use phrases like, we need to tune in. I need to pay attention. I need to give God the opportunity to speak. I need to relinquish control, and I need to put myself into a listening place. So in order to be able to hear and recognize God's voice, we have to practice. We have to try some things. We need to do certain exercises. Mm. And where are these exercises taught in the Bible that we need to do in order to practice so that we can learn how to tune in to God's voice? Answer? Nowhere in Bible in the Bible are any of these practices taught as the means by which we can tune in to hear God's voice. This is a formula for literally, folks. Uh, I I don't mean to say it in such stark terms, but it needs to be said this bluntly. This is the formula for tuning in to the devil and being taught doctrines of demons, rather than hearing the voice of God in His written word. Okay, you chasing after your subjective feelings, you might as well be conjuring up a demonic spirit, to be your spirit guide and guide you the same way that uh, demons guide those in the New Age or Hinduism and stuff like that. This this is not taught in Scripture. doesn't matter that you that you set out with the intention of communicating with the, what, with the one true God. God has not promised to communicate to you in this way. So what makes you think that if you practice certain practices that aren't taught in the Bible, that somehow God's going to show up and allow you to tune in so that you can hear his voice when he hasn't promised to speak to you 
in this way. Over the years, I've started to refer to these kinds of spiritual practices and exercises as so that practices and exercises. Because keeping in mind the goal, there are things that we can do and that we must do in order to grow in our ability to hear and recognize God's voice. And you see, we do these things so that we grow closer to the heart of God and we can hear the voice of God more and more clearly. With spiritual practices and exercises, the goal is to create patterns and habits in our lives that allow us to recognize God's voice. This is about knowing about how God feels about you, not necessarily about doing certain things. This is about being before doing. Resting in the truth that you're a beloved child of God and then doing some things out of your confidence and being a beloved child of God. It's not about doing certain things so you can check it off the list in order to become a beloved child of God. It's not about if I do this, then God has to do that. I think there's certain practices, certain exercises that will strengthen this conversational relationship with God that we're talking about. Again, where are these practices taught in Scripture? about. First thing is absolutely by far the written word of God. It's the Bible. Oh, I'm glad that you're going to pay lip service. Oh yeah, this is one of the ways. Notice he's not preaching from it, and the practices he's going to demonstrate later on are not taught in the Bible. Please read your Bible. And not so they can check it off the list, like I said, but so that you can hear God's voice. That is the only book about God, written by God, where you discover the heart and the character and the story of God that God is inviting you into. So there's the written word, the Bible. Then there's the living word, Jesus, who came to earth, the Son of God, God himself, right? And in the Gospels, we see what his life looked like and what he talked about. Notice here, somehow we can have a direct experience of Jesus, the word of God, without the written word of God. This is a different category of revelation, apparently, in this guy's mind. Spend some time in the gospel specifically experiencing the life of Christ. Look at what he said and try to do some of the things that he said to do. Try those things on and see what happens. So there's the Bible, the written word, and Jesus, the living word. But in no way did God stop communicating once the canon of the Bible was closed. The Holy Spirit is alive in you and in me and in all of us who say that we are followers of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's alive in the church. So there's other things, other ways, other practices in which we can participate to draw us closer to the heart of God. There's prayer, fundamental. Where are these practices taught in the Bible again? Real and honest prayer is so important. You can pray and be surface level and God's going to know that and that's not going to bring you any closer to the heart of God. Real and honest and open. Okay, I'm not knocking prayer. That's something we're called to do. Open prayer, vulnerable, transparent. Read the Psalms if you're not sure what that looks like, and you'll learn exactly what that looks like. Space and solitude. Need some silence. Space and solitude. You need silence. Where does the Bible teach us that we need silence to hear God's voice? And don't quote from First Kings. That God was in the still small voice. That's not a promise that you need that God is going to speak to you in silence. It's more important now and ever to create some space to listen and not just talk to God. We're we're pretty good at talking in our society, but how do we listen to God? You need to carve out time every day, and it's not going to happen in the fifteen minute drive in your car or on the bus back and forth to work or school. It's just not going to happen. 
too loud, apparently, in your car for you to hear God's still small voice. And then lastly, I'm not sure if it's an official spiritual practice, but experimentation. I think So if you're not sure how to tune into God, just experiment with all kinds of different things, you know. Sacrifice small animals, uh, maybe, you know, um, drink different types of things. You know, maybe, you know, different chemical compound, you know, things might help you to tune in to the voice of God. I think we just need to experiment by stepping into the activity of God as we read the Bible, as we look at the life of Christ. Step into the activity of God again. What is that? As we pray, as we create these spaces of silence and solitude, we just need to start stepping into the activity of God and testing and seeing, oh yeah, I think that's what God wanted me to do. That felt good. That made sense. Apparently we're Jedi. We're supposed to reach out with our feelings. So there are all ways in which we can cultivate a conversational relationship with God. And on your chairs on the flip side of the voice recognition quiz, there's this listening exercise. And at the beginning of the week, I was just thinking, I just want to offer people something that they can take home with them. And I can encourage you to do that. But then I realized... It would be a lot more effective if I can just give you a taste of what something like this could look like and feel like. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, um, we're almost halfway through this sermon, and not a single biblical text to back up a single assertion made by this guy regarding the so-called conversational prayer. Weird, huh? In your life. So we're going to sit... And have some silence. I hope you're okay with that. Now, just so you know, I'm going to do something that, like, everybody who knows radio tells you not to do. (laughs) And that's have dead air. And the reason I'm going to do it, I'm not going to cut out the little pauses here, is so that you can experience what this guy is basically passing off as Christian doctrine without a single biblical text and leading these people in these practices that are not taught in the Bible. And I'm just going to walk you through this. And I'm going to take a minute for each of the questions. And I'd love for you to close your eyes. If you're the kind of person that has to write it down, go ahead and write down things as things come to your mind. But I think it might be best if you just close your eyes so that way you don't see other people. And just listen to my words and allow yourself to experience this. And the goal of this is to better be able to better listen to yourself and to God. Really? So you came up with this practice and you have the audacity to claim that by somebody following this practice that you concocted, that they will then experience the voice of God. Really, did God tell you this before you concocted this practice? And if so, where can I find this conversation? I want to see your doctrinal statement. I'm going to have to take a look at your other other sermons to see if you're teaching what's in accord with the the truth, because you're you're basically claiming prophetic-level knowledge direct revelation from God for yourself. That means that you're either a true prophet or a false prophet, and we can tell by what you teach. Man. We're all achievers. We're all doers. We all want to, you know, say we were able to do something. And this is all about creating space to listen to yourself and to listen to God better. When you take this home this week, I hope you spend about five to six to ten minutes with each question. We walk- so you got to go through these questions yourself, and then you'll learn how to tune in to God. Walk through it right now. I'm just going to give us a minute with each of these. So close your eyes. Uh, my eyes are going to stay open. i got to watch what I'm doing here. And if you're driving, don't close your eyes. That Bad things could happen. And let me lead you through this. 
first listen for mental noise. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking that you're a heretic and that you're teaching people falsely regarding God. And you're tuning them into the devil rather than into God's real voice, which can be heard in his written word. What's on your mind right now? You've got to figure out how to warn the people in your community about your false teaching. Don't edit or judge or analyze what you're thinking. Just allow it to come to mind. What's a recurring thought? Is there a consistent distraction? Yeah, you. You are distracting people away from God and his clear voice and his word. Because if you were doing your job, you'd be opening up your Bible and preaching God's word. What comes to mind? Now listen to your physical body. What's your body saying? Physically, how do you feel right now? Maybe you want to stop, start at the top of your head. And I, I feel agitated by your false teaching. And work your way down through your body and pay attention to how the different parts of your body feel right now. My spleen hurts. And my left toe pinky toe itches again I gotta ask the question how on earth is any of this supposed to teach me how to hear God's voice I'm not hearing God. Now listen to your feelings. What is your heart sensing? What are you feeling? What do you mean, what is my heart sensing? Sheer evil, that's what I'm sensing right now, coming from your microphone. Again, don't edit or judge or analyze. Just let yourself feel what's there. Focus on your heart. What's the state of your heart right now? What's influencing the feelings that are coming out of your heart? God's written word, which tells me that you're lying to these people and are leading them astray.
listen to gratitude. What are you thankful for in your life right now? A pastor who preaches God's word every Sunday and teaches sound biblical doctrine and proclaims Christ and him crucified for our sins so that I can hear the word of God objectively Sunday after Sunday in the preached word of God. Who are you thankful for? Like I said, my pastor. Invite the Holy Spirit to help you think of all that you are thankful for and grateful for in this moment. Now listen to your desires. What do you desire? Both surface and deep heart desires. And again, don't edit or judge or analyze what comes to mind. Just think about what you desire. What's stirring in your soul? What makes your heart beat a little faster when it comes to mind? The thing that makes my heart beat faster is people who are teaching falsely regarding God like you. finally listen to God's desires. Ask God, what is on your heart, God? What do you desire? And what makes you think that God's going to start talking to me just because I asked this question in silence? Huh? Is there anything you want to say to me or that you desire for me in this moment? Listen to God. Um, he's not speaking this way. He hasn't promised to. Amen. Amen. We didn't pray anything. What do you mean, amen? Thank you all for being willing to step into that. Um, 
Yeah, that's probably appropriate. Step into that. Usually I think of, you know, <clears throat> dog bombs in the yard. Balance can be uncomfortable for some people and in our culture and in our society. We don't get a lot of time and room for silence, but in order to be able to listen for God's voice, we need to create those moments of silence where we are. Again, you got a biblical passage for this? Listening for God's voice in our lives. So take this home with you. Use it tomorrow or the next day. Use it regularly. Or maybe there's something else that you already do that helps you to listen for God's voice. But the Yep, it's read my Bible. The more of us in this room and in this community who engage in this type of activity and listening for and recognizing God's voice in our lives, the more we become who God has called us as a community to be. Really, where in the Bible does it teach this? That practicing this particular practice, somehow we can become more of what the community needs us to be. You got a Bible passage that says any of this. Not a single passage of Bible has shown up in this so-called sermon. As I close, I just want to give one quick warning around our expectations of God's will for our lives. And it's summed up in these two images. The balance beam, it's the Olympics. We're seeing a lot of gymnastics. But this idea of kind of God's will and a balance beam of life, or is God's will more like a six-lane highway? And I thank my friend Janice, who told me about the ways in which she has started over the years to realize God's will for her more in in kind of the image of the six-lane highway or just a big highway. Sometimes I think we worry too much that every decision we need to make, God needs to tell us exactly what we need to do, when to do it, how to do it. And if God doesn't tell us, we're kind of paralyzed a little bit. We want the specific path to go down, the specific decision to make. We put all this focus and we, what we are convinced that God must specifically want for us, his perfect will for our lives at the expense of what God's will for all of us is as his children. And the way I would say it is this, is most basic level. God's will for us is to be in relationship with him, spend time with him, to talk to him, to be honest and vulnerable with him, to seek his heart in everything we do, to listen to him and to cultivate this kind of relational, conversational relationship with him that we're talking about. Our primary work is to believe in his son, Jesus, and follow Jesus, responding to our shepherd's voice. Our primary work? And following him. If we're not careful, we can be paralyzed by these good intentions or by fear. It's good to want to hear from God. But God trusts you to make decisions, and God wants the work with the way that he has wired you with your gifts and skills and the experiences given you. God wants to work within that, and he trusts you to make decisions. Sometimes we have this fear if we make one wrong decision, then we've messed everything up. What if I get it wrong? What if God gets mad at me? Sometimes God just wants us to choose with the confidence, knowing that if we do get it wrong, God's business is redeeming and reconciling. And if we mess it up, God wants to redeem that decision. And God wants to reconcile us back to him. The balance beam is four inches wide, right? And we got to... Yeah, the balance beam is nowhere discussed in the Bible. Again, all of these are just plausible-sounding arguments. None of this is biblical doctrine. Be very careful and very focused, otherwise we'll fall. Whereas a highway, you got six lanes. I found out that all lanes had to be 12 feet wide, so you got like 72 feet. You can use either any lane you want. You can decide to be in this lane or you can choose this lane. 
But God's will is bringing you in a certain direction. You can make different choices, different lanes. You can ride the shoulder if you want to. And even if you get off and make a wrong turn, there's always an entrance back onto the highway. Find yourself in a spot where you feel like you're just focusing too much on one specific decision or one specific way to go. There's this verse from James that I think just serves as a great filter in helping you decide, is this in God's will? The first Bible verse is showing up in the conclusion of the so-called sermon. Will for my life or is it not? James says, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. For looking for God's wisdom and God's voice, the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and good deeds. Shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. If what you believe God wants you to do or the decision you've made is about peace-loving, gentleness, yielding to others, full of mercy and good deeds, then you can be assured that that's in God's will for your life. In Luke 24, right after Jesus rose from the dead, there are these two people walking down the road, and Jesus joins them, and he talks to them about the scriptures. And Now watch what he does with the road to Emmaus story. Totally misses the whole point. They don't really realize who Jesus is until Jesus leaves them, and they say this. We're not our hearts burning within us when he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures. So let's use their example. But let's pay attention. Let's uh, 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 Man, I mean, slow down there, dude. Um, Luke 24, right? Luke 24. It's the story of the road to Emmaus. Okay, Jesus has just risen from the dead. Two of his disciples are on the road to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other. This is... Chapter 24, verse 23. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. They were talking and discussing together. Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Greek text says their eyes were held. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in uh, these days? He said to them, what things? And they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and then crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all of this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but to him, but him they did not see. And then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe All that the prophets have spoken, this is in God's word, the written word, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the written word of God, Jesus interpreted to them uh, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, uh, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. What caused their hearts to burn? Jesus' teaching of the written word of God. Yeah, Joe here is just glossing over that important feature of this passage, which completely shoots down everything he's been saying, and instead focuses in on their hearts were burning. So apparently we need to follow their example and have our hearts set afire, if you would. Let's realize it before. Don't ignore your burning heart, upper room. Don't dismiss that stirring in your soul. Don't explain away that recurring thought in your mind because this is the stuff of the adventure of your life. Listening to God and responding will lead you on the adventure and into the life that God has for you. Let's pray. All right, done. Absolutely miserable sermon. What little Bible showed up out of context, and the practices he taught you, no, were taught in Scripture. The premise of the teaching, not taught in Scripture. The conclusion of the uh, sermon, not taught in Scripture. This is a formula for opening yourself up to the deception of the devil and to being deceived by your him, either your own sinful flesh or demons. Plain and simple. This is not a practice taught by Christ or the apostles or the prophets by which you can hear God's word. If you want to hear God speak, you open your Bible. This is very, very dangerous, dangerous stuff, and it's all over the church. And it's I, I just, again, the, the sheer arrogance to believe that somehow just because you practice a particular practice that you concocted that somehow God is behoven to you to answer and to speak to you in the silence. I mean, that's the kind of arrogance that when somebody speaks that way, duck because lightning bolts are about to fly. That's how preposterous and absurd and outrageous this way of thinking is. Who are you? Seriously, by what authority do you come up with the idea that because you've practiced a particular practice that somehow God now is going to speak to you on a particular frequency that you need to learn how to tune your ears to? It's absolutely absurd, arrogant, preposterous, and demonic. Hmm. So what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe to my feed on Facebook. Go to facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, click on the subscribe button, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.